chapter 40. Comfort and give solace to my people, says your God. Speak kindly to Jerusalem. Announce to her that she has served her term, that her guilt has been expiated. She has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. This is where scholars divide the book of Isaiah and say, well, the first part of the book was written by Isaiah himself, and this second part was written by a guy called Second Isaiah, some hundred years later, who lived during the time of Israel's exile. Well, the structures of the book of Isaiah, including the seven-part structure, totally discount that idea. This is very much a part of the book of Isaiah and very much part of this particular unit of chapters, chapters 36 through 40, which parallel chapters 6 through 8 in the book of Isaiah. I show that in my book, The Literary Message of Isaiah. What happens here, there is a complete turnaround. Because the book of Isaiah begins with the vision of Isaiah that he saw where the Lord's people Israel are rebelling. The Lord has reared sons, brought them up, but they have revolted against me. And the heavens and the earth are called as witnesses against the Lord's people who are witnesses of the Sinai Covenant. Israel does not know. My people are insensible. They have forsaken the Lord, spurned the Holy One of Israel, lapsed into apostasy. And then the judgments of God set in, the consequences of breaking the covenant, through the king of Assyria and his agency. All the things that he did, the people of God, helped to bring them back to reality. And the people of Zion, or Jerusalem, in chapter 37, had passed the test of faithfulness. And there is a reversal of circumstances there. The Assyrians had been the world power of their day, and now they themselves, that Assyrian power, is brought to grief, even at Zion's gates, even at the gates of Jerusalem, as they're trying to deal the death blow, as it were, to God's people. So this is a time to be comforted. It is Jerusalem that's here addressed. It's that level of people, the ones who have passed the tests. They have served their term. Whenever the iniquities of the people bring about covenant curses, the curses have to endure for a time. They're not just there today and gone tomorrow. The curses rest upon the people of God for a time, as a natural consequence. What was prophesied 40 years ago by Isaiah was now fulfilled in the days of King Hezekiah. That wickedness or that transgression of the former generations, the effects of it took time to be fulfilled. But there comes a time when the people faithfully endure the effects of former transgression that they can turn it around. Abraham did that in the case of the famine. He delivered 300 souls with him from the famine, and they all came down and lived with him in the promised land. He turned curses into blessings. And so it is here. She has served her term like a pregnancy. When it's full term, then there is deliverance. Her guilt has been expiated. By whom? Well, by her suffering the curses of the covenant, partly. By her experiencing the effects of transgression and faithfully doing so, and then eventually the Lord reversing it and turning it into a situation of blessing again. That's how her guilt is expiated. Also, we see that guilt is expiated by the Lord himself, because there is no curse reversal that can happen without the Lord doing it. And he does it all on the basis of the law of justice. He himself pays the price for transgression, as we'll see in chapter 53, so that the people may operate under a law of mercy if they repent.
And so her guilt is expiated by that, by him. You remember in chapter 6, where the angel brings an ember that he takes with tongs from the altar of atonement and touches it to his mouth and says, See, this has touched your lips, your sins are taken away, your transgressions are atoned for. Verses 6 and 7. The Lord does that. That's the altar of atonement. And in the book of Isaiah, God himself is likened to a lamb who expiates guilt. She has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. So long as she didn't repent, the law of justice operates and continues until she repents and the situation reverses. So eventually she does so. Double for all her sins implies that she suffered the consequences but also been able to reverse the situation. In other words, hand there is a metaphor describing the king of Assyria. He's the one that has meted out the punishment. The Lord has two hands, the right hand, which is his servant, and the left hand, which is the king of Assyria. Verse 3, a voice calls out, In the desert prepare the way for the Lord, in the wilderness pave a straight highway for our God. And in this scenario here, in this scene, in the first few verses of chapter 40, there is a vision going on. The prophet is having a vision of the Lord, as he did in chapter 6. In Isaiah 7, part structure, chapter 40, directly parallels chapter 6. And in chapter 6, Isaiah sees the Lord. And the seraphs there are surrounding the throne of God, and they have a cosmic view of everything. And Isaiah does not, in chapter 6, have that view. He's looking from below up toward the Lord. There he's having this vision. And here, in this instance, he's also having a revelatory experience, but it's a little different. It's more of an audition. He's hearing things. And yet he's also seeing things. But what he sees here is the same cosmic vision that the seraphs have in chapter 6. In chapter 6, the seraphs praise God, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The consummation of all the earth is His glory. It implies a cosmic vision. They see the big picture, the whole earth, and its consummation, or bringing to pass of its fulfillment, or the purpose of its creation. And Isaiah doesn't see that. But he does see it in this chapter, in chapter 40. From verse 12 to the end, there appears a great cosmic vision or a vision of the whole world as a creation. He sees the heavens, the earth, he sees what's going on on the earth, he sees the big picture like the seraphs do. And although he doesn't come out right and say, hey guys, guess what, I've seen this. But he does imply that that's what he's seen. All the things that he's saying from verse 12 and on are things that he has seen in his vision. He sees things, but he doesn't come out and say it. But he does let us know things, that the earth is round, for example. When we read those verses, we'll be able to see that he's looking down from above. And in chapter 6, he's looking from below upward, the exact opposite. And here the emphasis is on an audition, on the things that he hears. And one of the things he hears is a voice calling out, In the desert prepare the way for the Lord, in the wilderness pave a straight highway for our God. Well, what happens in the desert and in the wilderness in the book of Isaiah? And what happens there is that the people wander through the wilderness on a return exodus to the promised land. 
all through the 40s, and even in chapter 7, we saw that those who lived in the wilderness eat cream and honey, right? The whole land there reverts to wilderness, and those who survive eat cream and honey and live in the land there. It implies that there is a remnant that survives in the wilderness. The remnant doesn't survive in the cities. The king of Assyria destroys the cities. And those who survive go out from the cities in an exodus and wander through the wilderness like the Israelites of old under the protection of the Lord's cloud of glory and they end up in the promised land in a new promised land or in a renewed promised land and are given inheritances there in the millennium that will endure throughout the millennium. So the way of the Lord is the way of return. They return to Him, they repent which means to return in Hebrew, and then he returns to them when they do so. Like in chapter 35, beginning verse 8, There shall be highways and roads which shall be called the way of holiness, for they shall be for such as are holy. The unclean shall not traverse them, on them shall no reprobates wander. But the redeemed shall walk them, the ransomed of the Lord shall return, they shall come singing to Zion, their heads crowned with everlasting joy. And so, this voice calls out, in the desert prepare the way for the Lord. Now the New Testament identifies John the Baptist as a voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Matthew applies the fulfillment of this verse out of Isaiah to John the Baptist. Is that true? Can Matthew do that? Yeah, of course he can. What was John the Baptist's role? It was as forerunner to the coming of Christ, to his first coming, by that very fact, it establishes the pattern for a forerunner for Christ's coming or for the coming of the Lord. And that's the case with his second coming. In Isaiah, the coming of the Lord is preceded by a servant's mission who prepares the way for the coming of the Lord to his people. And it is in the desert. Now the desert implies covenant curse also, doesn't it? Otherwise it would be a lush land. So this land is under a curse. But in Isaiah, we see that the desert blossoms as the crocus, or some translate it as the rose. And the crocus is the desert flower, first flower of spring, and it blossoms suddenly. And the desert is what is reversed from curse to blessing. The desert actually becomes paradise in the book of Isaiah. Several places we see that. Chapter 51, verse 3 says, The Lord is comforting Zion, bringing solace to all her ruins. He is making her wilderness like Eden, her desert as the garden of the Lord. Joyful rejoicing takes place there, thanksgiving with the voice of song. It is the desert that is the first part of the earth that becomes paradise, like Eden, like the garden of Eden. Why? Well, because the people who are under the curse are able to reverse the curse and turn it into blessing. The people who go in the Exodus are the ones who inherit the earth in the millennium. And they wander through the wilderness and through the desert. It is the people who are able to reverse the curse who participate in the millennial civilization. It's not the ones who remain in a state of wickedness or who live in the cities, who are destroyed with the cities. So where does this preparer of the way, where does this forerunner preach? And who does he preach to? He preaches to the people who are under a curse and says, get your act together, repent, renew your allegiance to God and he will reverse your covenant curses and turn them into blessings. How will he do that? 
He will deliver you in an exodus from the Assyrian destruction. Then God will come. A highway for our gods, the way for the Lord to come on. But it's also the way of return home. Home from exile, home from dispersion to Zion, to the promised land. Also it is a straight way, it's not a crooked way. Because the ways of the world are crooked, the ways of Babylon are crooked, the ways of God are straight. Chapter 26, verse 7 says, The path of the righteous is straight. Thou pavest an undeviating course for the upright. In the very passage of thine ordinances we anticipate thee, O Lord. You can see the Lord through his ordinances, through following his rites of passage. It will bring you into God's presence. will bring God to you. If he's going to come to the earth, to reign upon the earth, it means that you must first be brought into his presence and be worthy of that. Every ravine must be raised up, every mountain and hill made low, the uneven ground must become level and rough terrain a plain. That's an allegory of what? Yes, it's true that during the horrendous destructions of the earth, there will be many mountainous places that will be made low and many low places that will be raised up. But it also refers allegorically to people's spiritual condition, that those who are lowly must be raised up. The oppressed must be released from their bondage and be lifted up. And those who are high and exalted and the high and mighty and the elite of the earth, they must be made low so that there is unity among the people, so there is equality. Verse 5, For the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh see it at once. By his mouth the Lord has spoken it. The glory of the Lord is the cloud of glory in which the Lord appears or implies his presence. And all flesh see it at once. All flesh which remains on the earth at that time. By his mouth the Lord has spoken it. It is a decree from the Lord, but mouth is also a metaphor describing the Lord's servant. He is the Lord's mouth or mouthpiece in Isaiah. The king of Assyria is also a mouth. It's two mouths. In the book of Daniel, the king of Assyria or the king of the north is a mouth speaking great things against the Most High. So it's a metaphor, but it implies that at the time of that coming of the Lord, before the glory of the Lord is revealed, that servant will be commencing his mission and declaring those kinds of things. Verse 6, a voice said, announce it. So it's giving him a commission to announce these things. In Isaiah 7, part structure is a type of the servant, so that what Isaiah does, the servant will do. The servant will be a prophet. He'll also be a king, like King Hezekiah. He's a new Moses, a new Abraham, he's a new Isaiah, as it were. And all of those types from the past come together in him, in this forerunner. So his job is to announce the coming of the Lord, to declare the fact that the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and so forth, and that there should be a way prepared for the coming of God, as John the Baptist did in the New Testament. A voice said, Announce it, and I asked, How shall I announce it? How can you? I mean, people are so hard of hearing. They're so closed up. Nobody cares. All flesh is grass, he says, and it's best like a blossom of the field. Though the Spirit of the Lord breathe within it, the people themselves are but herbage, grass that withers, flowers that fade. Only the word of our God endures forever. They come and go. They're here today, gone tomorrow. They're all excited one day, and the next day they're wilting. It's too hard to talk to people. The only thing is the Spirit of the Lord that animates them. The Spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He doesn't call them weeds, however, does he? He calls them grass and flowers. 
not wild grass. So he gives him credit for being okay, but even so, his job just seems too hard. If the spirit doesn't animate them, there's not much you can do with them. Verse 9, Scale the mountain heights, O Zion, herald of good tidings. Raise your voice mightily, O Jerusalem, messenger of good news. Make yourself heard, be not afraid. Proclaim to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. So God is coming, and they are to announce it. Who is to announce it? First of all, the prophet, verses 6 and 7 and 8. But also Zion and Jerusalem, they are to announce it. Not Israel or Judah or Jacob, but Zion and Jerusalem, people who have passed the test of faithfulness. Remember? Chapters 36 and 37. They receive a commission to go and declare good tidings, the coming of God. So what do we see here? We see that the prophet receives the commission and the people receive the commission. You mean they receive a separate commission apart from that of the prophet? No. God commissions the prophet and the prophet commissions the people. Everything follows a proper order. And who do they preach to? They preach to Jacob or to Israel. They proclaim to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. The cities of Judah are are where the people of God lived who were overpowered by the Assyrians. They were the people who did not pass the test. When the Assyrians laid siege to Jerusalem, people in the city did not capitulate to the Assyrians. They were loyal to their king and to their God. God delivered them. The other people had not had that experience. They did not pass that kind of test. So these people who did pass the test are now commissioned to go to the others. These are the people for whom God has reversed the covenant curse. Zion and Jerusalem are the people who receive a curse reversal and are now blessed and empowered to do this. Zion and Jerusalem are receiving a commission to herald good tidings and to be a messenger of good news. To do that to others of the people who haven't heard that good news and to herald the coming of God himself. And that's also what we find there in the cross-reference, chapter 52, verses 7 through 10. How comely upon the mountains are the feet of the messenger announcing peace, who brings tidings of good, who heralds salvation, saying to Zion, your God reigns. And that is heralded by the watchmen who lift up their voice, who cry out for joy, and they see eye to eye when the Lord returns to Zion. And that happens in the day when the Lord bears his holy arm in the eyes of all nations that all the ends of the earth may seek our God's salvation. So there, those watchmen are heralding the coming of the Lord, and here, Zion and Jerusalem are heralding the coming of the Lord. In Isaiah, the watchmen are those special servants of God who are on King Hezekiah's level, and eventually on Isaiah's level, who come out of Zion. So they are individuals within the people of Zion, or Jerusalem, who pass additional tests, These people, Zion and Jerusalem, passed the test of loyalty to God in the time of crisis, which raised them from an Israel level to a Zion level. Hezekiah passes the test in a special set of circumstances that lifts him from a Zion level to a servant level. Then there are others who pass tests who rise from a servant level to a seraph level, as a ministering angel. And then above them is God himself. Each one gets a commission at that time, and they all fulfill their missions or commissions on different levels of the spiritual ladder. Some are higher than others. The 144,000 servants of God in the book of Revelation is an example of the 144,000 on the seraph level. 
In Isaiah, those servants ascend to the seraph level and are endowed with special powers from on high to preach the good news in power, to the convincing of the people, and also to bring them out through physical elements that may stand in the way in an exodus to Zion, to the place Zion. What we read here and what we read in verse um, 9 of chapter 40 is part of a much larger scenario that happens before the coming of the Lord. Verse 10, See my Lord Jehovah comes with power. His arm presides for him. His reward is with him. His work precedes him. So the coming of the Lord is not just the instantaneous event itself or the actual literal coming of the Lord in person. It is a whole scenario that accompanies his coming. That includes the day of judgment or the day of the Lord when the king of Assyria fulfills his work, the work of destruction. And then there is the work of deliverance from the destruction. Simultaneous event. The exodus is out of Babylon, just as Lot came out of Sodom on the eve of its destruction. All of that is associated with the coming of the Lord. It's with power. The destruction is with power and the deliverance is with power. The king of Assyria is empowered to destroy and the Lord's servant is empowered to deliver physically the Lord's people in an exodus like Moses delivered them. And it's all happening at the same time. And the Lord God of Israel, the king of Zion, does not come actually physically, literally in person until the king of Babylon, which is another name for the king of Assyria, is put down. And that's in a structure that I talk about in my book called The Literary Message of Isaiah. Babylon descends from her throne into the dust. At the time that Zion ascends from the dust to sit on her throne, the king of Zion comes and rules at the time the rule of the king of Babylon ends. And it's a great reversal of circumstances that happens in the end time. So when it says, My Lord Jehovah comes with power, it's that whole series of events that climaxes with his actual literal physical appearing. But all of it is his coming. He comes like a thief in the night in the New Testament. He's not the thief. The king of Assyria is the thief. He plunders the whole world. But that's his coming. That happens at the coming of Christ. His arm presides for him. The arm is the Lord's servant who precedes him and who presides for him at the time immediately preceding the actual coming of the Lord himself. The arm also signifies divine intervention. God stretches out his arm. He reveals his arm in power. It's a person. There are two arms of God in the book of Isaiah. The Lord himself is the arm of salvation, and the servant is the arm of righteousness. Isaiah identifies them as two arms in chapter 51, verse 5. My righteousness shall be at hand, and my salvation proceed. My arm shall judge the peoples. Through a series of parallelisms throughout his book, he identifies the two arms as righteousness and salvation. Well, we know from other parts of the book that salvation is the Lord himself at his coming, and righteousness is the servant. The Lord calls him that in chapter 41, verse 2. He personifies righteousness. So that the arm presiding for him is the arm that presides for him among his people at the time of his coming. So that when he comes, his reward is with him. His reward for the righteous, that is, or, if you like, for the wicked, the reward of their wickedness. 
His work precedes him. The word work, all the way through Isaiah, identifies the work of destruction and the work of deliverance. Rhetorically, you can link that word all the way through to those two events, or various manifestations of those two events. So the work that precedes him is the work of destruction, mass destruction, worldwide destruction of the wicked, and also deliverance of the righteous. And that precedes his actual physical appearing. It says, Behold your God, verse 9, your covenant God. He comes to those people who keep covenant with him. He doesn't come to the others. Like a shepherd, he pastures his flock, the lambs he gathers up with his arm, and carries in his bosom the ewes that give milk he leads gently along. Not like Esau, who tradition says when Jacob gave him a part of his flock as tribute, he rushed the ewes that were pregnant, and he hurried them along, and some of them aborted. Here is the gentle shepherd who gives them plenty of time. He leads them to pasture. It's symbolic of the good shepherd who knows how to pasture the flock. Very much like when Christ spoke to Peter, feed my sheep, feed my lambs, feed my sheep. Now the gathering up of the lambs by the arm is the gathering up of the flock of the Lord's people, of Israel, or the people of God, through the agency of the Lord's servant. That's his job, is to gather the people of God from the four corners of the earth. We saw that in chapter 11, where the Lord gathers his people from the four directions of the earth in an exodus, out from the destruction. And he does it through the servant, the sprig of Jesse, who stands for an ensign to the peoples. He is sought by the nations in that day is when the Lord raises his hand to reclaim the remnant of his people who are left out of Assyria, Egypt, Pathros, Cush, Elam, Shinar, Hamad, and the islands of the sea. He raises the ensign to the nations and assembles the exile of Israel and gathers the scattered of Judah from the four directions of the earth. Time the servant fulfills his mission. And also the word shepherd is a link to Moses in chapter 63, who is there called the shepherd of his people. And that's what Moses did. He gathered the Israelites out of Egypt and led them to the promised land. And that scenario will repeat itself in that latter day. The carrying in the bosom and the gathering up with the arm is also imagery that Isaiah uses elsewhere for the gathering of his people Israel. And the kings and queens of the Gentiles carry them in their bosoms and lift them up on their shoulders and carry them in their arms and so on. The servant doesn't do all of this alone. The kings and queens of the Gentiles serve as nursing fathers and nursing mothers to the house of Israel. And they do that. They assist him in this. And what does that mean? It talks about them being converted or reconverted to the God of Israel and they're renewing their covenants with him. It involves, first of all, spiritual conversion and then physical gathering. Just as their exile was preceded by a spiritual apostasy, so in this case there is spiritual conversion and then a physical gathering. Those things are reversed. And the ewes that give milk and the lambs All of it implies fruitfulness and posturing and the gathering of the flock of God's people from wherever they may be scattered. Then begins this cosmic passage, and it begins with the creation. From here on, there's a series of alternating motifs of chaos and creation. 
It starts off with cosmic creation and ends up with the creation of an exalted people of God. Individuals who are individually exalted. Who ascend as on eagles' wings. The last verse. Who run without wearing and, and they walk and do not faint. They are renewed in strength. And that's the whole purpose of God's creation is to raise up an exalted people. People who are like him. And this chapter has in it the most detailed cosmic description of any that appears in the scriptures. There's nothing like it in the Psalms or in the other prophetic books. It's quite an important cosmic description. Who measured out the waters with the hollow of his hand? Who gauged the heavens by the span of his fingers? Verse 12. Who compiled the earth's dust by measure, weighing mountains and scales, hills and a balance? Their chaos motifs are waters and dust. And they're organized. They're measured out and gauged and compiled and weighed in scales and in the balance. They're not created out of nothing. They already exist, and then something is created out of them. And that, in Isaiah, is a message that comes very clear through the series of alternating chaos and creation motifs. The idea of creation ex nihilo, or out of nothing, doesn't exist in the Old Testament. It comes out of Greek philosophy. There's always chaos before creation. And waters and, and dust is what's there preceding the creation. Who has comprehended the Spirit of the Lord that a man should let him know his plan? The Spirit of the Lord is what creates these things, that brings order out of chaos the power of his spirit. And it's all according to a plan, a foreordained plan, which man cannot comprehend, man cannot know it. Who has comprehended it? The Lord has. Who sometimes is a synonym of the Lord himself? God has comprehended the spirit of the Lord. Of whom was he counseled that he might be enlightened, by whom instructed in the path of discretion, imparting to him knowledge, acquainting him with the way of understanding? Man could not do that. God could. But God is a paradigm for man, so man should be counseled. Man should become acquainted with the plan of salvation, or the plan of God for the creation of his people, which is the plan of salvation. Man should become enlightened and be instructed in the path of discretion, should have knowledge imparted to him, he should become acquainted with the ways of understanding. That must be. That's how man becomes like God. The nations are but drops from a bucket, counting no more than dust on a balance. So we go back to chaos again. The isles he displaces as mere specks. Drops and dust and specks, those are chaos motifs. Lebanon would not suffice to kindle a fire, nor all its beasts be adequate for sacrifice. Before him all nations are as nothing, as less than the ether they are reckoned by him. All of those are chaos motifs. But what's happening? We move from cosmic waters and dust, to the heavens, to the earth, to the earth being formed, and then there appear nations and islands, in a particular nation, Lebanon, which stands for Israel, which is a figure for Israel in the Old Testament. And then other nations, all nations. So do you see how it's moving from general things to very specific things? The purpose of the creation 
is not that there should just be dust and cosmic matter flying out there in cosmic waters, but that something should be done with them because they can become a habitation for people, for the children of God, for nations. Also, there's a little chiasm here of nations in verse 15, Lebanon in verse 16, and nations in verse 17. To let you know that at this point in time, Lebanon, or the Lord's people, are among all nations. To whom then will you liken God? What does he resemble in your estimation? A figure cast by the artisan, overlaid by the smith with gold, fitted with a silver chain from the craftsman? In other words, can you make statues of God or statuettes? Can you put God in human terms and say, this is Jesus or this is Heavenly Father? Can you do that? Isn't that kind of a desecration of what he really is? Or other gods and say, this is Buddha or this is um, whoever he may be and you can pray to him and be delivered. He's showing how ridiculous it is to cast God in that light to try to construct him using materials and try to make a replica of God. You can't do it. The artisan encourages the smith and he who beats with a hammer urges him who pounds the anvil. They say of the welding, it is good, though they fasten it with riveting that it may not come loose. So they weld it, and yet just to be sure, they better rivet it too because it might come apart. (laughs) God is not like that. God doesn't come apart. It's all contrived. It's all human and material. This is really satirical, what Isaiah is doing here, and he has fun with it too, so you have to see it in good humor. Those too poor for this type of sacrifice, that is something made out of gold or silver, select a wood that resists decay. They seek an expert sculptor to carve them an image that will not deteriorate. So we go from the creation of the heavens and the earth to nations, to a particular nation, Israel or Lebanon, and then what is the first thing we get? Idolatry. They're all idolaters. The first thing people do is corrupt themselves. And how disappointing that must be to God, the Creator, who when He creates an earth and puts people upon it, the first thing they do is they start corrupting themselves and start making little statues of their God. They've lost track totally of who God is and what He's really like. The first purpose in becoming acquainted with God is to have a correct idea of who He is, of His attributes. Verse 21, Are you so unaware that you have not heard? Have you not been told before that you do not understand by whom the earth was founded? That's the God who did it. That's what he's like. By him who sits enthroned above the earth's sphere. The earth is a sphere. It's round, it's a globe, and God created it. And he's enthroned above it because he's its God. That's a correct idea of his attributes. And you can see that Isaiah is looking at the earth from above here to whom its inhabitants are as grasshoppers, who suspends the heavens like a canopy, stretching them out as a tent to dwell in. The view is from above looking down below, whereas in chapter 6, Isaiah was looking from below up above. Isaiah now shares the cosmic view of the seraphim because he's become like them after 40 years of serving as God's prophet, faithfully fulfilling his calling as a prophet. Isaiah is received up into a higher dimension. He sees like the seraphim do, and he gets a commission like the seraphim do. 
the first part of chapter 40, he's to declare Israel's sin has been expiated. Just like in chapter 6, the seraphs declared his sin expiated. So in every way, he assumes the role of seraph or higher being, an angel, one who comes and goes between the worlds. We would say translated beings, they can do that. Like Moses or Elijah. So we go back from chaos, from uh, the chaos we mentioned in verses 15 through 17, the dust, the specks, the ether, and then the idolatry is still part of that chaos, because idolatry leads to chaos, brings destruction, brings punishment. Back to creation, the founding of the earth. Who did it? The one who sits enthroned above the earth, whom its inhabitants are as grasshoppers, who suspends the heavens like a canopy, stretching them out as a tent to dwell in. That's creation. The heavens and the earth are meant to be a dwelling place. They're a dwelling place for God and for God's children. And he sends his children to earth to live there for a time. By him who brings potentates to naught and makes the authorities of the world null and void. Going back to chaos again. Null and void actually uses the word chaos in Hebrew, tohu. That's a chaos motif. So you see the alternating chaos creation motifs here? It goes all the way through to the end of chapter 46. What does that tell you? And as we go through the end of chapter 46, with these alternating chaos creation motifs, they form a great chiasm with Babylon in the middle of chaos and the Lord's people at the center of creation. The purpose of the Lord's creation is to bring a covenant people into being and to exalt them. And the whole creation of the heavens and the earth and everything is specifically aligned or geared for having a suitable dwelling place, a place where God's people can come and grow and become something more or higher than they were before. But there are casualties Not everybody does that. Not everybody goes along with God's plan or program. They're not enlightened. They're not instructed in the path of discretion. They don't receive knowledge or become acquainted with the way of understanding. Many don't. Some do and are exalted and progress, and others don't. What happens to them? They may even be world rulers and potentates of the earth, but they come to nothing. When scarcely they are planted, verse 24, or scarcely they are sown, When hardly their stock has taken root in the earth, he puffs at them and they wither, and a storm sweeps them off as chaff. Chaos again. They're reduced to chaos. They come here, they live here for a time, and they go off and they're reduced to nothing. Why? They have squandered their probation. They've missed the purpose of coming here. And they provide opposition to those who do achieve the purpose or fulfill their purpose here on the earth. And in Isaiah, that opposition grows and grows and grows until it becomes so intense that out of that very difficult and stiff opposition comes a group of people who are exalted, but also out of it come people who make it their life's calling to pose opposition to them. The same circumstances that make some men angels also make devils of others. So we're back to chaos here, after having creation. Verse 25, To whom then will you liken me, or to whom can I be compared, says the Holy One? Lift your eyes heavenward and see. Who formed these? So we're back to creation again. 
He who brings forth their host by number, calling each one by name, because he's almighty and all-powerful, not one is unaccounted for. But we have here heavenly beings. Lift your eyes heavenward and see. What do you see up in heaven? Stars. Who formed them? God formed them. Who is a metaphor for God? He brings forth their host by number. In other words, every one of them is numbered. Their names are inscribed in the book of life, as he says later on. These are exalted beings who move on from an earthly existence to a heavenly existence. Because he's almighty and all-powerful, not one is unaccounted for. Because they rely upon God, and that's how they get there. They don't come there under their own steam. They don't achieve that exalted status themselves. They rely upon God, and they have learned to do so. When the going gets rough... Verse 27, Why then do you say, O Jacob, and speak thus, O Israel? Our path has become obscured from the Lord. Our cause is overlooked by our God. Here we see the category of Jacob or Israel, who are people who have yet to pass a test of loyalty to God. Yes, they are the covenant people of God, Jacob or Israel, but they're murmuring, they're wondering, like the people in the wilderness, our path has become obscured. Our cause is overlooked by our God. Is that true? Does God overlook the cause of his people? No, never. So what are these people indulging in? A little bit of self-pity and murmuring and whining and a little bit of deception, right? So you can see that these people, Jacob or Israel, that category of people is a category that still needs to repent. And that's why Isaiah defines Zion in chapter 1, verse 27, which we discussed as those of God's people who repent. And also in chapter 59, he defines Jacob as those who repent of transgression. And that's what these guys need to do. They still need to pass the test of loyalty to God. And he's contrasting them with the ones in verse 26, the exalted ones. The same test that those guys passed, these guys fail. And you end up with a dichotomy, two different types of people. One that are going on to exaltation, and two that are still wandering around in the dark, wondering, what's going on? Why why are we here? Who are we? Where is our God? Verse 28, the Lord responds, Is it not known to you, have you not heard? The Lord is the God of eternity, the creator of the ends of the earth. Now the path becoming obscured and so on, that's again a chaos motif. And so here we go back to creation. Creator of the ends of the earth. No matter where you are, if you're way out there in exile somewhere in some far off country, he's there. He's created all the ends of the earth. There is a path back to him. He does not grow faint or weary. His intelligence cannot be fathomed. Who's growing faint and weary? My Jacob and Israel are. They're faltering. They want to sit down and wait for God to come and deliver them, while they themselves do nothing. His intelligence cannot be fathomed. He supplies the weary with energy and increases in vigor those who lack strength. When does he do that? When they turn to him. And if they don't look to him to help them, he's almighty and all-powerful. Not one is unaccounted for. If they don't ask, they won't get Youths grow faint and weary, and young men slump down of exhaustion. But they who hope in the Lord shall be renewed in strength. 
That's the key. They must hope in the Lord. Another way of translating that is to wait for the Lord. In Hebrew, the word to hope and to wait for is the same word. It can be translated two different ways. And all the way through the book of Isaiah, you'll see that those who are the remnant, who participate in the Exodus, who are the people of God, one of their main tests is to wait for the Lord, to wait for Him, to hope in Him. Isn't that what the people did when the Assyrians surrounded Jerusalem? They sat tight and they waited for the Lord to deliver them. And He did. That was the test. And that distinguishes the ones who grow faint from the ones who are empowered or renewed in strength. It's that simple. And you ask, well, how can that be if it's so simple? If all we have to do is wait for the Lord and trust in Him when the going gets rough, why do I still whine and moan and groan and complain and don't talk to my friends instead of talking to the Lord? (laughs) Why do I go back to the arm of flesh and all that? That's the point he's trying to make here. Even youths in a life cycle, when do you have the most energy and strength? When you're a young man, right? Or a young woman. Those are the people that Israel depends on for defense in time of war. Yet even these people faint and grow weary. But the Lord can renew their strength. Notice the chiasm between verses 28 and 31. In verse 28, God does not grow faint or weary. His intelligence cannot be found. He's unwearying. Verse 29, there are people who get weary. The theme there is weariness. Verse 30, the theme is weariness. Verse 31, the theme is unweariness. They're renewed in strength, they ascend. What does that tell you? It's telling you between the lines that the nature of the unweariness of those who ascend or progress in verse 31 is the same as God's unweariness. The chiasm tells you that. It's a little structure that lets you know through parallelism that they assume the same unweariness as God has. What we have here is the closest thing to a people assuming a translated state. Verse 31 of chapter 40. They who hope in the Lord shall be renewed in strength. They shall ascend as on eagles' wings. They progress spiritually to a point that they actually can fly, like seraphs do, or translated beings do, or like Elijah did, or like other characters in the scriptures do, where the Spirit takes them from place to place. They run without wearying, they walk and not faint. They don't grow tired anymore. They're not immortal yet, but they are somewhere in between mortality and immortality. And that's where we end up. That's the whole purpose of God's creation, is to bring people to become like Him, and to ascend the spiritual ladder to that degree. And it can be done even in in this mortality. It can be done in this lifetime.